a prayer before study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist scholar, very good at reading, very bad at spatial reasoning. I haven't uh, updated recently the citation on that prayer that I always say at the start. Um, That's from the Thomas Aquinas prayer book, which is a lovely resource for um, Aquinas' prayers, if you're interested. Today, we are encountering Jesus, our mother. Episode 5 in the Lent series, The Many Faces of Jesus. Each week, I've been considering a medieval version of Jesus, a representation in literature, art, or theology, popular before the Reformation. So far, we've thought about Jesus the Judge, Jesus our Lover, Jesus the Knight, and Jesus of the University. If you've missed these past episodes, be sure to check them out on the podcast service of your choice, Or you can look at the text of them, which can be very useful for finding new resources at oldbookswithgrace.com. These versions of Jesus may be strange, silly, scary, or inspiring to us today. Above all, they challenge us to consider the versions of Jesus we encounter in our culture. Many of them capture important aspects of Jesus in the church that we overlook. None of these episodes comprehensively present these images. Think of them like little introductions that you can dive into further on your own. I hope that as we draw closer to Easter, their aesthetic beauty gives you joy too. If there's a version of Jesus I have obsessively tracked in my professional scholarship, it's this one. Because I'm a scholar and a student of Julian of Norwich, who has developed this image in the most beautiful and interesting ways I've spent a lot of time with Jesus, our mother. As a mother myself, this image impacts me on a deeply personal level. You certainly do not have to be a mother to appreciate the beauty and truth of Jesus, our mother. But it's a punch in the gut for you when you have a baby attached to you and a large toddler clinging to your ankles and a big kid yelling to get your attention. The image of Jesus as a mother doesn't stem from Julian, the first woman writer in English. Though wisdom is sometimes portrayed in biblical literature as having mothering qualities, 
the only representation of Jesus as a mother in the Gospels, comes from his comparison of himself to a mother hen, longing to draw Jerusalem, his chicks, under his wings. In Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven and Luke thirteen thirty-four. Perhaps surprisingly, male monastic writers in the 12th century really initiated the popularity of this representation of Christ in the Middle Ages. Anselm of Canterbury writes of Jesus and Paul, Both of you, Paul and Jesus, are therefore mothers, for you accomplished one through the other and one through himself that we, born to die, may be reborn to life. Fathers you are then by result, mothers by affection, fathers by authority, mothers by kindness, fathers by protection, mothers by compassion. Christ, mother, who gathers under your wings your little ones, your dead chick seeks refuge under your wings. For by your gentleness, those who are hurt are comforted. By your perfume, the despairing are reformed. Your warmth resuscitates the dead. Your touch justifies sinners. Console your chicken. Resuscitate your dead one. Justify your sinner. That's from Anselm of Canterbury's Monologion, chapter 42, 158. Quoted from Carolyn Walker Bynum's Jesus as Mother. Let's pull out a few things from this delightful prayer of Anselm's. First, we cannot ignore console your chicken. I want to start using that in my personal prayers on my bad days. Console your chicken, Jesus. Secondly, notice how Anselm distinguishes traditional fathering roles from mothering. Though Christ inhabits both, we can see how Anselm particularly associates the comforting, affectionate, compassionate role with Jesus' motherhood. The divine, authoritative distance of God the Father is brought closer and made accessible with the tenderness of God the Mother. This version of Jesus as mother heavily draws upon feminine stereotypes of being more loving, more forgiving, gentler, and closer than masculine fathering love. Unsurprisingly, then, the male monastic theologians often use this image to explore compassionate and tender authority. Abbots, the heads of monasteries, used it to describe their pastoral role towards their fellow monks. On his deathbed, Aelred of Revo, which, by the way, I've been to Revo, and if you have not been there before in England, you need to go sometime. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. But anyways, Aelred of Revo, on his deathbed, told his monks under his spiritual care, that he loved them as a mother loves her children. Bernard of Clairvaux, who you've met before, describes himself as a mother frequently and uses physical imagery like breastfeeding. Caroline Walker Bynum, whose wonderful book I mentioned above, Jesus as Mother, really probes the history and use of this imagery among the monks specifically. She reminds us how breasts to Bernard are a symbol of the pouring out towards others of affectivity or of instruction on page 115. There are even multiple manuscripts that show Bernard drinking milk from the breasts of the Virgin Mary because he loved using this comparison of breastfeeding and instruction 
and you can Google those or you can look them up on the blog. I've posted a few examples there. As with Jesus the lover, we find, perhaps with surprise, that medieval writers are generally more comfortable than we are with assigning stereotypically male or female characteristics to another gender, especially, as I hardly need to add, assigning feminine characteristics to a man. Can you imagine a male pastor from the pulpit telling his flock that he loves them like a mother and welcoming them to drink at the breast of his tender and compassionate instruction? I can just imagine the bodies shifting uncomfortably in the pews. As men and women kept using this image to understand aspects of Jesus, the emphasis began to change a little bit in the later Middle Ages. Bynum shows us how the monks loved to think through the soul's dependence on Mother Jesus' milk and his gentle authority, especially as model for themselves. As we approach Julian of Norwich and other later medieval writers, this note doesn't go away, but a new emphasis centers this image. The strange blend of new life, willing suffering, and risk of death where childbirth and the crucifixion intersect. Unsurprisingly, it is women writers, perhaps with visions of childbirths they have witnessed or with their own children's births in the backs of their minds, who particularly focus on these aspects of Jesus the mother. Marguerite of Oint, a prioress of the late 12th century, writes, Ah, sweet Lord Jesus, whoever saw a mother suffer such a birth? For when the hour of your delivery came... You were placed on the hard bed of the cross, and all your nerves and all your veins were broken. And truly, it is no surprise that your veins burst when in one day you gave birth to the whole world. A new note on the physicality of redemption enters this picture. Birth is a bloody, dangerous business. It, it always struck me as um, having had three kids myself, something bothersome when, when people would be kind of overly optimistic about giving birth, saying things, it's so natural, just trust your body. And that was, those things are true, but they also ignore the historical, um, huge risks involved in birth. Even in the safest and most successful births, a mother's blood flows on behalf of her babies. My favorite, Julian of Norwich, is the thinker who goes the furthest in developing both the spirituality and the embodiedness of Jesus, our mother. Julian of Norwich, um, who uh, I've done a series on, and you should check it out if you hadn't yet. Um, she's amazing. She was a 14th century contemplative writer. At the age of 30, she received a series of what she called showings, sights and sounds from God that led her to become an anchorite, walled into the side of a medieval church. She would meditate and write on these showings for the rest of her life. And Julian moves beyond simple parallels between the risky, painful experience of birth and Christ's passion. She writes in chapter 60 of the long text of her showings, Our great God, the supreme wisdom of all things, arrayed and prepared himself in this humble place, Mary's womb, already in our poor flesh, himself to do this service 
and the office of motherhood in everything. The mother's service is nearest, readiest, and surest. Nearest because it is the most natural, readiest because it is the most loving, and surest because it is truest. No one ever might or could perform this office fully except only him. And that's from the College and Walsh version of the showings. I like that Julian has this moment of envisaging the moment of the incarnation and redemption as a womb within a womb. Mary carries Christ, who carries the world as the ultimate mother. Christ's motherhood is specifically tied to his incarnation. As he takes on flesh, he takes on the office of motherhood, an office, Julian says, that only he could do to the full. So it's not that motherhood on earth, our own mothers that we can immediately call into our minds, are models to help us understand Christ's mothering. For Julian, the motherhood of Christ is not a metaphor. It's essential to who he is. Christ's mothering is the original, the only true full mothering, childbearing, and childraising that good moms on earth provide a small and distant echo of the true office of mothering, the office truly closest, most secure, most natural. It can be really helpful, especially if you resent the implication that fathers don't love their children as much as mothers do, to, co- to consider the historical roles of fathering and mothering. In the 14th century, Fathers certainly were associated with paternal love and especially with protecting their children, but not with the day-to-day tasks of caring intimately for a child's physical and emotional needs. Though I'm sure there were occasional exceptions to the rule, fathers didn't change diapers, dress their children, feed them, or carry them about as they did household tasks. It was the mothers who were suffering the pangs of breastfeeding, elbow deep in excrement as they washed filthy swaddling clothes, no disposable diapers in the Middle Ages, wiping the spit off from the few garments most people owned. Think also of the incredibly high mortality rate of childbirth. Giving birth was risking one's life to bring in a new life, as it still is for some today. To be a mother was to be significantly, materially altered by the presence of this new person. Motherhood entailed, and still entails, biological, physical demands on women, the ones giving birth and doing the arduous labor of breastfeeding. If you were the mother, your very presence was the sole lifeblood of your child, unless you were wealthy enough to hire a wet nurse. Fathers could come and go for days at a time, and did often. And I'm not talking about abandonment or skipping out. I'm just talking about very loving fathers going about the daily businesses of life. Mothers couldn't do that. Julian writes of our mother Jesus, But our true mother Jesus, he alone bears us for joy and for endless love. Blessed may he be. So he carries us within him in love and travail until the full time when he wanted to suffer the sharpest thorns and most cruel pains that ever were or will be. And at the last, he died. And when he had finished and had borne us so for bliss, 
still all this could not satisfy his wonderful love. And he revealed this in these great surpassing words of love. If I could suffer more, I would suffer more. He could not die anymore, but he did not want to cease working. Therefore, he must needs nourish us, for the precious love of motherhood has made him our debtor. Chapter 60 This last phrase is particularly striking. It is necessary, fitting, natural for him to feed us. For the dear love of motherhood has made him debtor to us. And I've mentioned this before, but I think the point is so striking that it needs to be dwelled on again. This strong language, Christ being debtor to us, might initially make us uncomfortable or confused. We're more familiar with the language of the Lord's Prayer, asking God to forgive us our debts. But here, Julian draws upon the biology and physicality of motherhood in order to express something essential about who Jesus is and how he loves his children. Humans are not the kind of animals who give birth and then let their offspring raise themselves. We're hardwired to raise our children, even to raise other people's children who have needed it in varying circumstances. We become debtors to our children, desiring and obligated to raise them both by our often surprisingly overwhelming love for these new helpless little creatures, our bringing them into the world, as well as biologically. Scientifically, we now talk about bonding and know about the chemicals and hormones that allow, especially after childbirth, to build foundations of human connection that last long after infancy. Mothers are awash in hormones after birth, causing their milk to come in and their fierce love for their baby to kickstart a life filled with new deprivations, like waking in the middle of the night many times or patiently soothing fussy babies repeatedly. Julian had no clue about what we know about hormones. But Julian recognizes the relationship between mother and baby as one based on the baby's bodily dependence. A dependence treasured and acknowledged fully by the mother, embedded in the mother's very body. This dependence may make human mothers, I'm one of them, chafe and worry. After the births of my children, I never felt like myself. Being chained to my child through my hormones and the baby's bodily requirements felt oppressive and depressing to me, even though I loved my children. But Christ tells Julian that if he might suffer more for his child, he would, and he is capable to do so. If it was needed, he would do it all, and he does. Understanding Christ's love through the prism of the office of motherhood enables us to recognize an inherent essential attribute of Jesus. Christ's love for his children constitutes his very being. It is his nature. It's hardwired. This Jesus feeds his children with his very own flesh, with which Julian compares to breastfeeding. This parallel would have been even stronger in the 14th century when Julian was writing. The foremost medieval scientific theory about breastfeeding postulated that the woman's breasts transformed her very blood into milk for her infant. 
in effect, the mother was sacrificing her blood for the baby's health and well-being. Here's my blood poured out for you. Here's my body broken for you. Take it and eat. I hope it's already clear what we can glean from these visions of Christ our mother brought to us by the monastic writers and Julian. But if it's not, bring your mess to Jesus. Bring your scraped knees and your anxiety and your mistakes and your tragic failures and self-destruction and your starving, insatiable desires to your mother. Embrace your littleness and your need. He's ready, capable, and yearning to fulfill the office of motherhood. This week, as part of your Lenten practice, spend time with Mother Jesus and take the weaknesses and failures in your life to her loving embrace. Where do you need to embrace your dependence? If you want, try this practice in a warm, cozy place like a bed or a couch with a blanket to really lean into your childhood and Jesus' motherhood. As you identify and confess these places of limitation and error, If you're a parent or a grandparent, hold your child close. Really taste and feel in your bones your love for them. Or if you have beloved nieces and nephews, consider how that love you feel is absolutely dwarfed by the immense love that Mother Jesus carries for you. And of course, Anselm of Canterbury has graciously provided us with a prayer for this week. Console your chicken, Jesus. Thank you for listening to Old Books with Grace. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share this podcast with a friend or two. If you want to look up any of the references or check out the text, you can look at oldbookswithgrace.com. And I love to hear from you if you have questions or thoughts. <laughs>